Hey folks, we have a really interesting conversation today. It was our first in-person podcast. So while we were on the road in Southern California this past month, we had the opportunity to stop by UC San Diego and speak with Brian Keating, the cosmologist, in person. And it was a really amazing event. There's something profound about sitting across the table from the guests that you just don't get through Zoom. We hope to do more and more of that in the future. And honestly, if you want to see us be able to travel more and do these in-person podcasts, please consider coming over to patreon.com and supporting the podcast for just a couple dollars a month. It really adds up the more and more people that decide to support the podcasts that they love. This is the way forward. We avoid ads. We avoid sponsors. We can study whatever we want. And we need your help to make that happen. In addition, if you have some time and some money and some energy, you should come to our conference in Austin, April 7th and 8th. Demysticon 2024 tickets are on sale right now. And we're going to have two days of talks on the history of physics, on theories of everything in physics. We have Pierre-Marie Robitaille, who's going to give us some talks on the sun and guide us through the eclipse. And we have a special appearance remotely by Michael Levin. So you'll get to ask Michael Levin questions directly in real time. Tickets are out for sale up here, so consider coming by. Yeah, and it's going to be so much more than that. It's just going to be a really good chance for us to get together as a community and actually exchange ideas one-to-one. We'll be able to hang out at night. We found some really good beer gardens nearby. And so I think it's just going to be this extended hangout session for the most part. I'm really looking forward to meeting you folks that are interested in the same nerdy topics as me because it can get a little lonely out there in the real world. Also, while we're on the subject of people that are interested in the same nerdy topics as us, if anybody wants to present a poster at the conference, reach out, let us know, because we have a couple that people that are interested in it right now, but we'd like to get, I don't know, maybe like 10 posters? A room? A wall covered, at least? <laughs> so, yeah, consider that. If you have a, a pet topic that you've been researching, as many of you seem to, consider sharing it with folks, and we'll make that poster session happen. All right, for now, our conversation with Brian Keating. We'll see you next time. The scientific revolution starts now. We are at UCSD. We are at Dr. Brian Keating's office. And I think that we're going to talk about the history and the context of science the ideas that underpin the way that we come to conclusions about the world. And it seems like it might make sense to start with something that we've probably heard a lot about over the course of the last few years, which is this idea that we should believe in science or trust the science. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that comes with a lot of baggage because as scientists, we know that you have to believe in the process, but not necessarily in the theories that come out of it. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how you're processing that as we sit at the point in time where the James Webb is starting to show kind of interesting things about the galaxy. Yeah, but right over there, yeah. Right? And so... <laughs> you guys have a James Webb on display right in front of you. <laughs> Feel free nice. to touch it, but don't break it like my kids did. Uh yeah, well, first of all, it's great to see you guys in person, meeting live. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed be, you know, listening to your show and also being a guest. It's my second appearance on your show. And it's great to have you in San Diego and be in person. I think we've missed out on so much due to the pandemic. It was horrible, awful, tragic, and devastating to millions of people. 
the one, only good effect that I can tell besides spending more time with my kids and you know feeling less in intensity in the workday schedule was I, I got to start my podcast. And that allowed me to meet, you know, literally speak to millions of people, 25, 26 million people in the last uh, three years alone. As we speak in the end of 2023, I can't believe it's been over three years since, almost four years since it first came on the scene, that thing that we shall not mention. But uh, but it's great to be in person, and that, that's one of the lessons I took away. So, you know, the... Um, the end of it is certainly uh, is certainly a wonderful boon to all of humanity and especially podcasters. So thank you for being here. Um, I always say, yeah, I never say I believe in gravity. I don't, I don't say I don't say I believe in evolution. I say I have evidence for evolution. There are copious amounts of, of pieces of, evo- of evidence for evolution, uh, but that doesn't stop people from not believing in it or not treating it as if it is something worthy of belief and faith the way uh, something like religion would be um, would be apprised. So <clears throat> I don't uh, I don't really you know really react violently to that statement. Believe in science. I sort of know what people say. Uh, they're they're either saying something on a political basis, like we trust the scientists, we follow the scientists. It's sort of a shorthand, you know, trust the science, follow the science. I believe in science. But then you see it kind of melds over into into cultural um, phenomena, like believing in UFOs, believing in conspiracies. So when it bleeds over into cultural phenomena, like belief in UFOs, belief in you know vast conspiracies and so forth, then it does sort of take on the patina that science and these kind of hypotheses, if you will, are on equal footing. Uh, or that even religion and science are on equal footing because you believe in God. You don't say, I have proof of God, although there are people that claim that they do have proof of God's existence or that they've had God revealed to them in the form of you know personal revelation in Christ, for example, is very common. Uh, but those aren't fundamentally subject to the scientific process that we can uh, ascertain whether or not uh, conjecture is true via the tools of epistemology, of ontology, of figuring out what is the actual ground level, base level truth. Uh, and just like no one can convince me, I always hate it when people say, you know, you know, let's let's go out for sushi or whatever. I'm sorry if it's your favorite food. Uh, but for me, I hate it. I hate fish. I hate everything that lives in the ocean. It's always trying to attack me, kill me, spite me. I have a guy go surfing here. I always get some kind of uh, painful reaction to the denizens You'd of the You'd think deep. that would make you want to eat them more, <laughs> That's right. I hate cows. I just, I just hate cows. So in this case, we, you know, uh, so no one can make me feel better. And they always say, oh, well, like, I know this place that makes such good f- fish. It, it doesn't even taste like fish. I'll say, I'll do you one better. Skip the middleman. Just don't have the fish. You know, it's like if that's the biggest compliment that what you're eating doesn't taste like what you think. Anyway, so it's a matter of taste, and it's almost like that. Like, do you believe, you know, or do you have taste or faith in something? Uh, so it's fundamentally not scientific. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I mean, think about all you guys know way more about philosophy than I'll, than I'll ever know. But but you know, you think about things in phil- in, phil- in, in philosophy, classic. You know. Kant's categorical imperative. That's not like something you can prove that that is the ultimate way or the golden rule for my religion uh, and Judaism and Christianity. Um, It's not something you can prove, right? And you can say something can appeal on the basis of reason that it might be, you know, more, more proper way to live or the the best way to live even and, and actually, uh, you know, ascribe it some value, but it doesn't mean that it's scientific. And so, it's a challenge. I've I've done videos about. The, in fact, I did one called "I Don't Believe in Gravity." You know, physics professor doesn't believe in gravity, <clears throat> and that's because we have so much evidence for it. But the other thing to take to keep in mind is whether or not scientific facts are truth, 
right? We take it for granted that once something is, you know, scientifically, you know, brought into the canon of science, that it's true, it's a fact. But I always say it's completely the opposite. Scientists don't go about proving something being true. Mathematicians do. But, and philosophers can make certain statements that are provisionally conditional on logical assumptions, but they can't prove anything in science. I can't even prove that the earth is round. You know, if this is a beach ball not representing this cosmic microwave background, uh, if it was a beach ball representing the earth, it would be have much more in common with the actual shape of the earth than this table would that many people believe is true. The true shape of the earth is flat. Uh, but it still wouldn't be true, and neither would the description of the Earth as a perfect sphere, because it's not. So everything in science is provisional, and that's okay. Uh, you have to be sort of comfortable in this anxious state as a scientist, that you'll never know the fundamental truth, the actual answer, because it requires an infinite amount of time or energy or patience or, um, or, or activity. But that's okay. And that's the branch of life that you, you might define science as that which can't be proven, but is as close to the approximate truth as possible. It's like a different kind of truth, too, than you might access through something like religious truth, right? You talked about the golden rule. That's proved out, right? I mean, that seems to be true by experience, but it's a very different kind of truth. Like, in science, we're just building models. I feel like we're, we're always reaching towards the truth, but we don't, never expect to reach it at the same time. Mm. And so, the scary part of that is you have to open yourself up to the, the idea that the theory that you're in love with, that seems to be so close to the truth, there might be a better option at any given point. And it seems like in our modern age, the difficulty with that is that we build our whole identities around our scientific careers, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's it be, can become a, a very combative sport at the highest levels, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's... And so how do you navigate that as a scientist is the real trick. Like, how do you maintain that? Right epistemic humility, if you want to call it that. Uh, many don't, <laughs> I think is the short answer. And that's a very, very, uh, you know, perceptive um, observation. Because if you look at the typical person who becomes a scientist, let's get into it, the most dangerous branch of science, sociology of scientists, mm -hmm. right? So what do scientists do? What are they like? What To what can we analogize them to? And you know, I always say scientists are like children. I have children, thank God, and then, you know, they're wonderful. And, and they're they're just the most amazing, innocent cherubs, and they, they're adorable, and they have great ideas, incredible imagination, you know, just mind-blowing curiosity, passion. Eventually, you know, you're talking to them, and they'll keep asking you questions, as, and me as a scientist, and they'll assume I know everything. And and last night, one of my uh, babies told me, you know, I'm not a good professor. So that, that stung. Oh, no. But, uh, but it's okay. Uh, because, you know, he said, you're not even a real professor. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not one of these fake professors on the internet. Um, but maybe the, the gig is up. Anyway, so um, they'll keep asking what, what me. Was the, what was the evidentiary basis that they used for that claim? Uh, well, this guy's got a little problem with me because I wouldn't give him his, uh, his, his Play-Doh that he wanted to play with in bed, you know. <laughs> Not a great idea to do that to a five-year-old. Um, but anyway, uh, so but it but it's sort of revelatory of the nature of children, right? So um, when when you have a child, their their base level curiosity is infinite. They just want to know everything, and because they know less than an adult, they're curious and they have hypotheses, and they don't know that their hypotheses have already been ruled out. So to them, they're Aristotle, they're Socrates, they're Galileo, they're Einstein. Right, but and so they'll keep asking you. They'll come with some idea, and then you'll say no, that's not. And they'll say why, and keep saying why, because, and then they eventually get to the base level of reality with 
parenthood, which is because I said so. Mm. You know, and if you don't, you're <laughs> you're you're going to lose your your own marbles, right? Um, so so let's apply it to scientists. Scientists are incredibly curious. They're incredibly passionate. They don't like taking no for an answer. They're anti-authoritarian by nature. They don't like rules being you know pounded down on their heads. Um, they they love their own toys. They treat their own toys very very you know personally. Uh, they don't like playing with others. They're jealous. They're petty. You know, so it's like there's no such thing. You know, life has yet to invent a single-edged sword, right? So there's there's wonderful qualities of children and scientists, and then there are negative and, and less desirable aspects of, of both uh, groups. And so I think, yeah, the, the, the notion that scientists are somehow walking Wikipedias that are infallible, that are also open to the epistemic humility that you mentioned, um, you know, I think is farcical. Like, we're just these automata that just apply scientific method. I mean, you guys, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but uh, I could say, what's the scientific method? Ooh, um, do you want the Baconian method of like variables? I don't even think you should answer because I, there is no science. I mean, there's multiple well, ones, right? So to some there's degree. not one, right? Yeah, well, I would say no, that I would say yeah, that okay, the scientific ahead. method, as you understand it, is very much adapted to technological progress, right? Where you iteratively That's test way, ideas yeah. out, and mm -hmm. you manip you know, you can characterize something with equations that parameterize your system, and then you can iterate on it until you get cr closer to approximating the phenomenon. And then maybe if you want to build something, you can use those parameterizations and so forth. I think it's a very industrial method in right. some sense. But yeah, but that's I think that there's a philosophical approach to science, which is more based in almost like reason and the kind of evidentiary presentations that are more common in law where you spend time philosophically trying to understand the implications of the thing that you have discovered through experimentation. Because mm -hmm. I've been teaching this course on microbiology for kids, and so it's a lab course. And it's... Kids, college kids. I know. They're, <laughs> I'm old enough that I'm like, children everywhere. But it's really fascinating because... There's something about science that has to do with just the process of this is the independent variable, this is the dependent variable, we are going to measure one thing and then see how nature responds. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other process of it, which is to ask, well, what does it mean that nature responds that way? Mm. And I think that what Shiloh is pointing to is that there's a method that allows us to say, nature responds this way, here's the equation, and we can apply that equation to be able to build an engine, a rocket, a telescope, a microscope, whatever. Right. And that's almost enough because then we can collect more data, and then that lets us do the next thing. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with much of that. I would just say, you know, um, by some of those definitions, uh, it's not clear. For, and we don't have to debate it, but it's not clear that Aristotle was a scientist by those definitions, right? Because he would clearly do things in a scientific fashion, but the scientific method wasn't invented for, you know, 17 centuries hence, right? Um, but also, he would come up with observations that would neatly fit the data, and the data were, were ac absolutely accurate. And this happened with uh, our good buddy Albert, too, where he conjectured a, a static universe because there was nothing, absolutely nothing, to reveal otherwise. And yet, it's as different from the actual universe we think we live in as humanly possible. So how could both... Both of those, you know, um, propositions be part of the same canon of the scientific method. I, I, I'm, I am only asserting 
that there is no one definition. I mean, there's multiple ways to get at scientific truth. There's serendipitous discoveries. There's deductive approaches to the scientific method. There's inductive approaches to the scientific method. But I think we love this. My friend Eric Weinstein calls you know scientific method uh, the radio edit of you know popular consciousness and scientific you know uh, awareness because it's something that you can point to. Oh, you didn't apply the scientific, or you're not applying, or you claim to be a scientist. So it's kind of used as a as a shibboleth to to kind of you know as a shortcut. And I, I think it's fine, but uh, but again, getting back to the original question of whether or not there's you know there's a problem with this notion of belief, I think you know scientists are as dogmatic as as any other person, and to expect them to be otherwise is is you wouldn't expect like lawyers to be more moral in general or more rational than other people, right? <laughs> half the time, half of them have to defend people that they know are guilty, right? So so how could you you know do something more um, purely morally? I actually think it is good that we have such a jurisprudence system, but now we're getting pretty far astray. Uh, I do think it's valuable to have a branch of society in order to have a culture and a civilization where you have a branch of uh, a practice, a craft, where you have artisans of that craft that apply common tools, common techniques, but maybe violently will disagree on occasion. I think that's a sign of a healthy field. And, and if you don't have that, you have kind of groupthink or politics or something that is, um, I think, ultimately might be interesting, but it's not certainly something I want to spend time on. So personally, I think all of our, our, our predilections come into play, just like I don't like fish. I'm not going to take you guys to a sushi restaurant. Uh, but at the same time, it may be that some abstract sense, oh, maybe fish is the best for me. So I'm actually acting against my best interests. I think scientists do that all the time. Mm. Yeah, it seems like as long as people are focused on the fact that our job is to understand nature, to physically understand nature, I mean, for physicists, right? Our job is to understand the mechanistic basis for all the phenomena that we observe. Mm -hmm. And as long as we remain inspired about that and excited about getting to know this place, this incredible place that we wake up into one day <laughs> when we're born. And if we center that, then we, we, and we really meditate on that on a daily basis, then we're less likely to fall prey to, I love my pet theory, or, you know, I love my advanced degree or whatever it happens right. to be that people tend to get sidetracked by. Yeah. But in, in the context of cosmology, this is kind of playing out, right? To some extent right now, we, we talked about the James Webb. What's going on? So it seems like there are, well, there's, like we mentioned gravity, maybe that's a good place to begin, right? There's these anomalous motions in, in the celestial world, right? <laughs> Let's say the galactic rotation or, uh, Big Bang dynamics, things that people are really having to rethink the fundamental basis of these phenomena for the first time in a long time, right? It's been maybe a century that people have been sitting on general relativity as the end-all, be-all, and it's kind of gotten concretized in that fashion. So what's unfolding? What are the specifics of this drama that are playing out right now? Yeah. Um, so it is fascinating because it is an example of kind of the battle between, say, groupthink and and uh, you know what I call big cosmology, you know, and and then these lone geniuses like the Einsteins or the Galileos that tend to get the lionized share of the credit, right? Um, so the 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 most kind of raging controversy right now in my field of cosmology is whether or not the big bang happened which is like saying you know did uh did uh, life form on earth or did evolution occur yeah you know, so that that claim is an extraordinary claim that the big bang did not happen and it's been stoked in the media <clears throat> by a real handful of i wouldn't say 
borderline crackpots, okay? I would say people that are very, very unorthodox in their approaches. Some are not uh, practicing scientists. Some have ulterior motives. They, they have a, you know, a business interest, if you can imagine it, in, in understanding their particular application of, of the alternative to the Big Bang called the Plasma Universe. Um, some of which was developed in this very building by Alvin, and who is a Nobel laureate, who had uh, some some outlandish ideas about the origin of the universe as well. And in this very office was inhabited before me by a Titanic astronomer named Jeffrey Burbage, a theoretician, who, along with his uh, wife Margaret, who is even more exceptional than he was, uh, they came up with uh, Fred Hoyle and. Um, and um, uh, Willie Fowler at Caltech, they came up with the concept of the nucleosynthesis of stars making the heavy elements, like I'm going to give you guys. So here's your gift. Your holiday gift is a meteorite. So that's for you, Thank you. Stasia and Sheila. There you go. So these are the byproducts of a process that they first indicated, which is called uh, stellar nucleosynthesis. Yeah. So there you go. I'll zoom in there. So show it yeah, to the camera. Right. So I actually give these away uh, to anyone with a .edu email address. You know, smells, smelling it. Smells, smells meaty. So interesting. Yeah. Smells meaty, right? Yeah. Well, it was traveling, you know, 26,000 miles per hour at one point. So these are real meteors. These are the, cat you know, the, the kind of fossil relic of a, of a stellar process called a supernova, type 2 supernova, blasting material out into the solar system. So um, the Burbages and their colleagues came up with the theory to explain why this is here and why the iron in this meteorite is identical to the iron in your blood. So it's true what Carl Sagan said. I have a pinger pup at him somewhere too. You know, we're made of star stuff, right? So, so the star stuff is, uh, is, is literally flowing through our veins. They came up with that process. They did not believe in the Big Bang. Two of the, at least two of the four of them. I don't know about Margaret, but Hoyle is the one who came up with the term Big Bang as a pejorative, which means orgasm, apparently, in British English. Although I gave, get, made that statement at the Royal Institution in London this past summer, and they kind of looked at me strange. So I, I think it's fallen out of favor. <laughs> we don't say that here. <laughs> That's right. We're proper ladies and gentlemen here. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so he coined the term as a pejorative to say this is ridiculous. The universe didn't have some orgiastic beginning, right? Um, and yet, so now we think it does. And and the evidence for it is supported by not that authority really plays into it, right? This whole notion, 97% of scientists believe that, but that it's been subjected to hundreds and hundreds of independent cross-linked and uncross-linked and uncorrelated types of examination, ranging from the isotopic abundance of all sorts of different things from the water you're drinking to the balloons that and helium that you can go get at a party store to the lithium that we take to be normal. No, I don't, I don't take any of <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, no, I, God, I, can't, I have to be careful in making any micro Aggressions, but there's lithium, there's beryllium, all this stuff. They came up with that. And then it ties into the causal chain that leads to this meteorite, which was predicted as a consequence of the stellar formation endpoint called the supernova. That Hoyle, the guy who didn't believe in the origin of the universe through a Big Bang, believed in what's called the quasi steady state universe. So all these things tie together incredibly well. Now, what's happened recently is, and maybe I should show this because you guys came a long way. Here, I'll zoom in. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I just want to say, like, the you mentioned. I mean, it may as well name some people. Like, I one of the first books when I was ten years old, and I was really into reading all these pop physics books. One of the books I found in the basement of our library in my hometown was was a book called "The Big Bang Never Happened." Yes, and I was, I very, it was the be it very was careful. They're sharp and they're very fragile. Are these the photographic plates? These are photographic plates. Some of these were made by. Variable? These are not. It's not these stuff. 
excuse me, it's not the Cepheid variable plate, but it's one of the plates that Margaret Burbage used with an amazing astronomer named Vera Rubin. Mm. So Vera Rubin was in this very space, in UC San Diego. She learned how to map out the rotations of galaxies for Margaret Burbage, who was the wife of the man who had this office, Jeffrey Burbage. And the two of them taught them that she could be, she was discriminated against because she was Jewish and a woman. And uh, for many reasons, she became the household name that we know today because of the work that she learned here on rotation curves of galaxies. Mm. Now, if you look at rotation curves of galaxies... And you ask, <clears throat> how fast should this galaxy be rotating? How many times should a star like the sun have lapped around the uh, galactic center in the past N billion years since the galaxy formed or since the Big Bang formed? So this guy that you're mentioning wrote this book, The Big Bang Never Happened. That book came out when you were probably a newborn or maybe not even born, 1992 or three. And that book was uh, issued on the occasion of the release of the Hubble Deep Field, the most icon- one of the most iconic images in all of science. I'm going to be teaching a course, and I'm, I'm starting an online university at some, some point soon, uh, just for fun, because so many people are interested in this stuff and That's getting awesome. such good feedback. I'm going to do a course on the, the top 20 astronomical images of all time. And this is like number one or two. I'm not going to give it away. You have to buy the course. 99, 99, 99. No, I'm not, I'm not, just kidding. I, I, it may be free. I'm not even sure. Um, but but, but the point is, uh, it's one of the most iconic images. Uh, and that image shows galaxies. And it shows galaxies at an epoch when traditionally thought by people like Lerner back in 1994, they shouldn't exist. Mm. That these types of galaxies, their structure was far too mature. And therefore, it needed not only to be uh, true that the Big Bang never happened, to have an, inf- an eternally old universe, which can't explain a host of other uh, examples, but that type of, of universe also adheres to this plasma cosmology of his hero, Alfin, who also, I don't know what about UC San Diego attracted so many, I don't know, you, you came here, so, uh, attracted so many individuals who don't believe in the Big Bang, but it had a surplus of them. Anyway, uh, nowadays, so now the Webb Telescope Deep Field comes out, images the exact same field, sees the exact same galaxies that Lerner and Hubble and everyone saw because they're publicly domain, and it sees more stuff because it's seeing at infrared wavelengths as opposed to just optical wavelengths. Therefore, it can see farther back in redshift, which is farther back in time. It can see back to a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, Lerner is now claiming, oh, this has caused astronomers to panic. And in fact, I did a, a live uh, interview with Alison Kirkpatrick, who's a professor in Kansas. And, and she was quoted as, you know, she can't sleep. Everything's every But he just took all this stuff out of context. And then a couple of months after that, or almost a year after that, um, there was a publication of an, uh, a re-estimate of the age of the universe, also using a, a kind of outdated model for the evolution of the universe. It, now, he did this, uh, Professor Gupta in, uh, in, in Canada, he did have a universe that had a Big Bang, but now he claimed the universe had to be twice as old, and then only twice as old, so it had to be 26 billion years. Well, my friend Joe Rogan picked up on that, and then he all of a sudden was you know kind of going off on how, how amazing that is, and then Elon Musk chimes in, and says, well, this is just incredible, but, you know, what's really sketchy is dark matter. So I'm like, these guys are just, like, throwing all this nonsense. <laughs> you know, they're just, like, armchair experts. They can say whatever they want, but, and it's fine, and, and I, I like both of them. But, but the point being, having a galaxy that rotates either faster or appears more mature in its structure is not in any way a falsification of the Big Bang narrative any more than if I say, well, there are, there are primates on the surface of a blue-green planet that's orbiting around a type 2G star and it is um, in the Goldilocks zone. And those individual primates 
according to my theory of evolution, they should not even exist, let alone have these electronic, electrified pieces of silicon and glass that they communicate telepathically. Uh, that's impossible. Therefore, the Earth didn't form. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. So, what they might have a complaint against the uh, the the version of the models for galaxy formation, galaxy rotation, galaxy composition. But that's it's like saying you sh you found this type of fern, you know, in the fossil record that shouldn't have existed until 100 million years later. Uh, you would never say, well, that throws off the theory of plate tectonics. You would just say, we don't understand plant biology well enough, or our models are wrong. Maybe maybe they're wrong. Uh, but to say a that this is new information is totally false. It's just every 20, 30 years, whenever there's a new technology, allows us to see farther back into time doesn't mean that they couldn't have had these. Now, if they saw a galaxy prior to the CMB, which is 380,000 years, a thousand times younger than the oldest galaxies that they see, claim to find and see and do indeed see, um, then that, that would cause me to reevaluate understanding of structure formation. Maybe the origin of, of how the heavy elements were produced, because these galaxies have heavy elements, which produce red or light in, in some cases. And so we would, we would have to reevaluate. It still wouldn't make me reconsider and falsify the notion that we understand the first few microseconds of the universe. But they're always playing upon this. They get a lot of attention. I, I'll have some responses I'm working on a... What do you call those reaction videos? <laughs> so Lerner keeps making the circuits. He was in Europe this summer, and you know they've asked me to, you know, put out a put out a hit piece on them. I'm not going to do that, but I'll put out a video that shows exactly what we know: the 10, 20, 50 different pieces of evidence in favor of the Big Bang. And the astonishing thing is that there's a disagreement within the scientific community about the most fundamental fact in cosmology, the, the, the most important parameter in cosmology. I say, like, if you wanted to know how long you'd live, um, you know, hopefully you guys are going to live to 120, as we say, but what would you do? What would a doctor, a real, not like me, or you guys maybe, but uh, what would a real doctor ask you? What would be the first thing they'd say? What would they say to you? Say, we'll start with, with you, Shayla. Like searching for your health? Yeah. Like, what would they ask you? What kind of questions? Probably, what do you eat? Do you exercise? Yeah. Things like that. Your vital signs, maybe. Oh, okay. What else yeah, would they I, ask? I guess so. Uh, maybe I haven't been to a doctor in a really long time. Is, <laughs> would they give a different answer to you now or when you were 10 years old? How long, how many more years are you going to live? Oh, in that sense? Yes. What, uh, do you believe in the singularity? It depends on if you have like a futurist <laughs> doctor. Because I know that there's a regenerative medicine center on uh, campus. Okay. And so, like, yes, there this is. This is the thing, is. right? Yeah. Is like, to some degree, there's an expected lifespan, but there exactly. are also things that we change in the process of living and doing all of the science and that's... the environment and everything i'm not even getting that you guys yeah, are yeah, so yeah. bright you guys are always like <laughs> anticipating 20 questions i'm just saying to know how many more years you have to live left to live they also need to know how old you are now right mm. so what i'm saying is right now astronomers are making predictions about the future of the universe and the universe with dark energy is it a cosmological constant is it is it a um is it a quintessence model that might evolve are there other types of dark energy types of dark matter? But they need to know how old the universe is. And right now, astronomers, no debate. And there's a huge debate. There's a huge, what's called Hubble tension. The Hubble constant is effectively the reciprocal of the age of the universe. One group of astronomers using uh, the, the Cepheid variables, the same types of observations that Vera Rubin and, Mar and Margaret Burbage did to make these plates here. And this is real historic artifact. Uh, I'm lucky to have it here. Um, but the, uh, they come up with an age of the universe that's effectively younger than the age of the universe predicted by astronomers, cosmologists that study the cosmic microwave background radiation and its patterns. Both of those are indicative. This is like asking a toddler 
and take what's your vital signs, what's your family history. It'll predict a lot. And in fact, very accurately, the actuarial tables, insurance tables, they do predict lifespan very accurately. And there's always some uncertainty. But within the uncertainty of each one, I should say this, the uncertainties are at the 1% level for both the cosmic microwave background. It's actually half a percent. The, the precision that we are quoting, we, my colleagues, and I quote on the age of the universe effectively from this are at the half a percent level. And from the Cepheid variables in the later universe, that's at the three quarters to one percent level. But many different types of Cepheids, supernovae, white dwarf, all these different things. And then a completely different type of cosmology from the CMB. They both have percent level or less errors, and they differ at nine percent. So they're differing at, you know. This is called the Hubble tension. It's called the Hubble tension. So if you look at it, and each one could be at, let's say the lowest one is at its highest edge of its error bar, and the highest one's at the lowest, then they are, they're discrepant at five standard deviations. This is something to take seriously. Because that five standard deviation, the 10% difference between them, means the universe could either be uh, 11 billion years old or 14 billion years old. That's a huge spread, but it's not enough to account for this, in any case, for the age and maturity of these different galaxies. So um, all in all, that's a healthy thing that these, these groups disagree, but each one has incredibly exquisite precision. Mm-hmm. Now, what could cause the universe to, to change over its lifetime? Like if you ask your toddler, do, how many packs a day do you smoke? If they answer, you're a bad parent, right? But by the time they're your age, maybe you smoke, maybe you don't. Um, maybe we vape or, or we do an edible. No edibles? No? Okay, come on, guys. You're letting me down. I, I thought about, you know, what are you guys, Generation Z or something? Uh, anyway, we wasted rocks. your youth. I, lo- I Just love kidding. how young you think we are. <laughs> Well, I know how old you are, approximately, because okay. you told me when you. Graduated. I did want to say something like, yeah. To so I got to know Eric. He came and actually did a guest lecture for me while I was teaching at Columbia. Well, I was actually teaching at Barnard across the street, and one of the things that really mattered to me when I was a kid was it was you know say what you will about his theories or whatever, but the fact that I found a book in the library that was saying, hey, there's there is dissent possible. Like yeah. I had never imagined science. I had always thought of it as this monolithic story that was handed down and you know iterated on. And he also so, has this, he, sorry, he also has this really beautiful section at the beginning of his that's book. What I was say, oh, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you take it. The pendulum thing. Yeah, where he he points out this way that consensus moves from one place to another because science comes with cultural, social, metaphysical burdens that are carried by the people that are putting the theories together. And so when yeah, we talk about yeah, at a certain point and then and then but he will claim that there's an active uh, it's, it's very confusing because on one hand he'll say there's an active conspiracy to suppress the truth coming out of him on behalf of people from literally like the union of professional cosmologists which doesn't exist. <laughs> and then he'll say, "Well, look at me, I got this paper published." So he says things will be rejected and not even evaluated. And they'll say, "But look, I have this paper that was published in um in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society with several typos by the way in it." So it, it tells me the referee process was kind of shoddy. Um but anyway, fine. So you can't but you can't have it both ways. I can't mm-hmm. say there's a vast conspiracy against the ideas that Brian Keating is promulgating and furthermore that same conspiracy is also allowing me to publish, you know, be like they're publishing, you know, the the you know the nine eleven truthers uh, uh, information that's all out there, and then they're also suppressing that there was a conspiracy to call. I'm not even going to wade into that. I'm just using it as an example. Mm-hmm. I think blaming the world for anything is kind of the lowest <laughs> lowest possible yeah, place on the totem pole. True, what he says, but but I don't think it's very you know it's very significant, and that he's trying to argue that because things have changed in the past. 
Um, and because people that we respected and paradigms we respected in the past were overthrown, therefore, this time when people call those people crazy, this time they're calling him crazy, I get emails like that all the time. You know, you're going to think I'm crazy. They called Einstein crazy. He wasn't good. I mean, they make up all sorts of stuff. There's actually a really funny crackpot index that floats around oh, yeah. that has like, I don't know, 30 or 40 different characteristics on it. And one of the main ones is equivocating your position in the world to the position that Einstein was in exactly. at the time when he created his right. theories. Yeah. And so I guess the point is not that Eric Lerner is correct or that, you know, the Big Bang never happened, but it's more that there is this really beautiful aspect of science that has to do with our spiritual relationship to the ideas that seem possible at the time. And I always think about it where... What do you mean by spiritual? Because I, mean, I think of that maybe not in the context of science. Well, that's, I know, I know, because it's like it's a word that we tend to not look at very closely because yeah. it's like, well, we're scientists. We're generally like atheistic. Yeah. We don't like let that enter. I don't care about atheistic, just objectively, Objective. factually, evidentiary, etc. But I'm like, I think about Newton trying to figure out how light worked. And he didn't have the evidence, he, he was missing pieces, and so he could never fully come to a model that made sense, mm -hmm. and it tortured him. Like, do you know what Newton did for the last half of his life? After he wrote the Principia, he after he wrote alchemy, Optics? He did a lot of religion. And, he uh, joined the Royal Mint as oh, yeah, their like the lead the counterfeit officer, and he would dress up and he would go to pubs, pretending to be this down-on-his-luck dude, to catch counterfeiters in the act. And then torture them. I got it. He oversee the torture, yeah. I have a video coming out where I talked about that with uh, Joe uh, Rogan as well. Hilarious. Yeah, he was he was kind of a, a, a jerk, you know, shall we say. But I think that there is this, this metaphysical aspect where he had a worldview that was governed by the limits of what he could imagine and the limits of what everybody around him could imagine. And so when I say spiritual, I kind of mean this, this zeitgeist influence on the way that people think mm -hmm. And when we talk about paradigm shifts, the notion of paradigm shifts is that the paradigm shift kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like Thomas Kuhn, when he writes about it, it's that there's this sudden stepwise projection where it just ratchets forward. Right. And I'm like, I think that what actually happens is that there's a group of people who see things in a specific way. And at some point that way of looking at things becomes impossible to ignore. And so they've been doing all of this work in the background. And then all of a sudden, the moment arrives where the tension with the old ideas is so high that the only thing that's left to do is to switch. And from the outside, somebody looking in, it's just like, oh, well, all the scientists decided at one fine moment that like it was time to switch. Yeah, but I, I think in practice that I, I, I don't mean to say that you know, Kuhn's ideas are outdated or outmoded, um, but I don't think they're universal. I mean, when you look at the Big Bang uh, for a whole, um, to call it a paradigm shift, I don't think, uh, so, you know, my my 1979 you know, uh, Fiat, you know, shifted even slower than that. I mean, it's taken forever to actually come up with it. And the fact that, you know, it's still not agreed upon, you know, the finest details of things. And there's, there's one or two lacunae in the, in the, in the big bang model that, that learner hangs his hat on still. And then there's just giant grand Canyon gaps in his, like 
the one thing that he can't explain is the tired light and how does tired light actually occur? He doesn't understand the mechanism in a non-expanding universe. He has to account for redshift. And that's like the number one observable in all of cosmology is, is the redshift and the, uh, because we can't measure distances directly. Mm -hmm. So you have a proxy. Anyway. And that's where the Big Bang started from what I understand, right? Was off of the Hubble relationship. Yeah. So the Hubble relationship was the, was the key idea. It was the key observation. The idea came earlier from Lemaitre and as you guys probably have talked about and know about, uh, and others. And it was a consequence of Friedman's application of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which can actually be proven using Newton's laws of, of universal gravitation. So all these things had to come together. So you're talking about like the 1700s, Principia, all the way up through now. And to say that, you know, one thing that I've, I've, I've been teaching about it to general audiences recently, the Big Bang, and one of the things I, I talk about is how this steady state model was still popular up until the 60s and even into the 1970s. And it really wasn't until the 1992, 1990 measurement of the spectrum of the cosmic microwave background by past guest on the show, uh, John Mather and others, on the Kobe uh, FIRAS instrument, that it was known to be a perfect black body. And up until that time, even Jeff Burbage and other people in this office and Fred Hoyle and others maintained that, no, the steady state could still accommodate. The redshift was caused by dust grains and so forth. And, and it turns out, even into the year 2000, my friend Professor Anthony Aguirre at Santa Cruz, you guys should interview him if you haven't. Um, he's you know, a phenomenal intellect. He wrote one of the greatest papers I've ever written, read about it, um, You know how dust can explain you know the Hubble experiment. And this is right before the WMAP experiment was launched. Now nobody believes. And no professional cosmologist really working believes that the CMB is produced as a byproduct of dust or something. But getting back to it, so one of the foremost proponents of you know the the uh, the steady state from a philosophical standpoint was actually the late great noblest uh, Steven Weinberg, mm -hmm. who said the reason that the uh, steady state theory is so attractive to most physicists is because at least oh my goodness sorry <laughs> all right I'll snooze I'll give you guys. <laughs> Get, sorry, yeah. I that was a fire alarm. That's how I wake up. Yeah, like, we need to evacuate the building. <laughs> Ryan, no, it has to be like crickets or frogs or something. No, we don't do that around here. Oh, when you have kids, you need like, the strongest oh, possible Lord. alarms. <laughs> All right, so we could go another five minutes. Um, so uh, we'll cut that out. Okay. So what uh, what Weinberg said is that the reason that people like the steady state model because it least resembles the account of Genesis one one mm. has no beginning. And most scientists he recognized are atheists, but or agnostics, if as the case may be, and and that having that was a philosophical virtue, according to Weinberg, is that it didn't rely on anything connected, and it was as far apart from a biblical narrative mm -hmm. as could be countenanced by someone who is a card-carrying atheist his whole life. Um, and so it really wasn't. And he claims, if indeed the steady, the uh, the if indeed the cosmic microwave backgrounds spectrum is found to be thermal, then that will spell the death knell for the steady state theory, but it hasn't. <laughs> so has the paradigm shift really occurred or are we waiting for it? Is it necessary for every single detail to be nailed down to the sixth decimal place to understand it? Like I said, we know the age of the universe, but it differs in different models and differs because of not just calibration errors or analytical errors or noise. It differs because of the way that we interpret data arising in an evolving universe with dark matter and dark energy itself, which were not our contingent, ideas that are not part of, you know, they're kind of bolted onto the Big Bang model itself, mm. the so-called lambda cold dark matter paradigm. So if, to wrap this to the place where we started, where you asked about the scientific method, and I think that the paradigm shifts when the theory can let you do something that the other theory didn't let you do. 
Like if there's some yeah. aspect of it's more science, expansive. specifically technologically, like if you think about the theories that we have of like immaterial gravity of space time, where if you can figure out how to manipulate space time to produce, let's say, anti gravity devices, like let's say that's possible, or be able to use propulsion off of manipulation of space time directly somehow, which I think okay. is like a pretty sci fi idea. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. But I'm like, in theory, if we understand it, I don't see why it's significantly different from like a nuclear bomb. Like, if you told somebody about a nuclear bomb 200 years ago, they'd be like, what are you talking about? And yeah. The question I always ask is, you know, and the analogy I always would use is, you know, we're talking, we're using these microphones, they're connected to computers or uh, you know, cameras, or they're all transistors, right? So mm -hmm. transistors is effectively, you know, one of the most simple, in some sense, quantum mechanical device to explain. Did anybody look into the, you know, the Schrodinger equation and then say, you know, Bardeen, you know, Shockley, et cetera, they look into it and say, oh, well, let's design this thing to do that. No, it was completely technological. And only afterwards do we understand exactly how to manipulate and improve upon it vastly. So uh, while it's true that, you know, Einstein recognized e equals MC squared, it wasn't like, you know, Oppenheimer looked at the e equals MC squared and said, oh, oh that's, that's how we build the bomb, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem with, with science is that sometimes, yes, it does produce technology, but the question of scientific coherence of uh, so-called the virtues of a theory and a model um, they're they're kind of speculative, and the reason I think I say that is because you can't agree upon it any more than I think I made the case earlier. You may or may not agree that there's no one scientific method. In other words, we wish we were mathematicians. We have deep, deep, abiding mathematic envy. We all physicists want to be mathematicians because they have a proof of what is mathematics. In other words, or not mathematics, in terms of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, and they can specify that there's axioms that cannot be proven within the formal con contextual, you know, scope of mathematics, or things that are not provable within that scope. Um, we have no such thing. The closest people, the, the most common thing at a bar, someone will say popper, it should be falsified. But even that's a joke, right? Because I could say to you, uh, you know, what, what's your what's your horoscope sign? What is your horoscope sign? When is your birthday? Uh, are you asking what it was 2,000 years ago when they invented the horoscope system? Were you an Ophiuchus? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh my God. I've never met an Ophiuchus. Okay. So people out there are like totally freaking confused right now. Well, the, Probably the, Libra. Let me say Libra. What do you celebrate now? <laughs> or what do you... Well, no, because the, the funny thing about the horoscopes, Shiloh told me about yeah. this, was that when they were... Because it's like the house of the constellations yeah. where they are, like when the That's sun right, rises. Where the sun, is. where the sun is located. On but the they've changed. That's right. Slightly. And so right. they've shifted over time. But when you were born, what constellation... What is your zone? What 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 is your birthday? It's <laughs> in January. January. Okay, mm. so it's coming up. So uh, I forget Aquarius. So anyway, like that. So I could tell you your horoscope. I could tell mm. you. You know, mm. people don't know. They think I'm an astronomer. No, I also do astrology. Mm. My side hustle. I <laughs> sell got stars. Some tarot I sell, cards. Yeah, I yeah exactly. I saw in the so office. I could tell you. Like tomorrow, you are going to you know get get uh, you know a huge promotion. Your podcast is. You guys are going on Jimmy Kimmel Live tomorrow night. Okay, that's my. I, I'm. Predicting, I, I guarantee it based on the stars. I, I see this happening, and I, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, he's a star, right? Um, tomorrow night, you can prove me right or wrong, right? If you guys got on Jimmy Kimmel. Um, so, therefore, it's falsified. Mm -hmm. Therefore, astrology is science. Case, no, it's ridiculous, right? So, we wish we had that. We wish we had something like Girdle provided for mathematics, but we don't have it. So, we come up with all these, like, you know, copes <laughs> mm -hmm. to deal with the fact that we don't have it and many other people have written about it updated it what should really constitute actual scientific you know be part of the scientific corpus it's 
evolve that even that evolves and there are many such virtues but simplicity organizational um coherence self-coherence not not, not having inconsistencies or you know internal problems with it um subjected to test and criticism some even include beauty which i don't Mm. um but uh but all those things comprise what are sometimes called by uh professor michael keys k-e-a-s sort of similar related called the theoretical virtues i did a podcast with a couple of folks luke barnes and garrett lewis great uh astronomers cosmologists you guys could talk to them too but uh but it's, it's called the cosmic revolutionaries handbook so how do you overthrow the uh theory of cosmology the big bang the steady state what kind of virtues should your model have how should you go about confronting it how should you be open to criticism to refutation or to even you know examples that bolster you and for that um yeah i think it's a fascinating subject and it's you know we'll have to do a part three to be continued Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for giving us your time, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's good to see you. Thanks. Glad to meet you in person and everything. Good to meet you in person.